In your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 10 as we continue our, our study in the book of Romans. Let's, let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, recognizing that we need you to minister to us this morning. We need you to, to teach us from your word. We need you to, to work in our hearts to cause it to have an impact upon us to change us, to mold us, and to conform us into your image. I pray, Lord, that on this morning that you would cause us as your people to have a love for the gospel, clarity in the gospel, and that you give us boldness to proclaim the gospel both here and even to the uttermost parts of this world. We, we pray, Lord, that um, if there's any here who might not yet know you, Lord. Um, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them as they see with clarity the gospel in the book of Romans in this particular chapter. And so meet us here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a wonderful text before us this morning in Romans 10, verses 1 through 10. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, saying, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, I, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We hear the heart of the apostle here in this particular chapter, right in the very beginning, beginning, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. You hear within the heart of the apostle just this desire more than anything. We saw at the beginning of chapter 9, and again here, his heart's desire, his prayer, is that they would be saved. His desire is to see the nation of Israel come to know Christ. We look and we see throughout this particular chapter, he has made reference over and over again to the sovereignty of God, election. And yet you look at it and he comes to chapter 10 and it's just my heart, my desire, my prayer, 
is that they would be saved. His heart is such that looks to the lost and just more than anything desires to see them come to know Christ. And we see at the beginning of of chapter 9 where he says if it was possible that he would even give up his salvation for them. He wants to see them saved. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. We we live in in a time where Many say things like, people can believe whatever they want to believe as long as it's sincere. I think people will go to heaven as long as they have faith in something and that it's sincere. And yet that's not what God says. He speaks here in in verse 2 saying, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have zeal. There's fervency that is there we look and and we we find that to be the case particularly in the days of jesus the the pharisees were the religious leaders and in their minds they, they kept every part of the law and yet jesus rebuked them over and over again for legalism he he said things to them like these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me And in vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines and the commandments of men. Or or in Matthew 23, verse 24, he says, Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He says that they do everything they can to strain out the gnat. They do everything that they can to keep the law in its entirety. That they had rules and rules and rules. You look at the law that's given in Scripture, and, and they took the law... And they built laws all around it. Um, And they continued to build laws all around it. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that were given to make it so that that there's no chance of them ever committing sin as far as disobedience to the law. Laws that were given in Scripture, like in Exodus 23, verse 19, it says... First of the, of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so what did they do? They took that commandment, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and they made all kinds of laws surrounding that. Um, there's stoves that were made specifically for dairy, and stoves that were made specifically for meat. You, you had pans that were made for dairy, dairy and pans that were made for, for meat. Just so that there was no chance of making something and having it be where some of the milk splashed over and landed into that pan that would have been cooking the, the goat, the meat. And so they had laws that were made. And to this day, if you go to Israel, you'll, you'll go there and, and you, you won't find a cheeseburger. You won't find a, a restaurant that serves both, both dairy and meat. Um, at least in all the restaurants that I went to when I was there, it was, it was restaurants that had dairy and there was restaurants that had meat. And you, you wouldn't find um, them together because of this particular law. There was laws that were made. In Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. 
And so what they did was they made rules after rule after rule to make sure that in no way did anybody ever break the Sabbath. They told you the exact amount of weight that you could carry and how far you could walk. If you go there today on the Sabbath and you go up an elevator, you'll notice that you stop at every single floor. The reason why is because it's considered work to push the number three. It's considered work to push the number five. And so lest you break the commandment of the Sabbath, of working on the Sabbath, you stop at every level. And you look at this and there's zeal. You could just continue on and on and on with the different commandments and you'll see that they've made rule after rule after rule to make it so they don't disobey the commandments. And yet Jesus says you strain out the gnat and yet you swallow the camel. You do everything you can to keep the law, but you're missing the big picture. We look and we see that he's speaking to a nation in which every bit of their effort is in keeping the law for the purpose of salvation. You find that in other religions as well. It's about law. It's about keeping the law. Within some of the major religions of the world, you have Hinduism. They believe that the soul gets reincarnated and it's evolving through many births until all karmas have been resolved and moksha or liberation from the cycle of rebirth is attained. You, you, you reach this level of eternal bliss and that's your, your goal of moksha. And there's laws that are surrounding that. There's festivals that take place. There's one festival in particular that takes place every 12 years. And people come from all over the world for this. It's, it's the largest religious festival event in, in the world. Over 30 million people will come to this event. And, and it's where the people come to where the Ganges and Yamuna rivers come together. And the reason why they come to that particular location with 30-some million people is because they believe that this is a place where God, on his way to heaven, accidentally spilled an urn containing the nectar of eternal life. So God accidentally spilled this urn. And so they go there every year, or every 12 years, and they make this pilgrimage to bathe in the water there, to purify themselves and to break the cycle of, of, of reincarnation. Yeah. There's no caste system at that particular time. Those are temporarily set aside, and holy men lead, lead millions of, of, of people into these cold waters, these holy, naked men that all go together into the water. They, they shave their, their heads. They are thousands and thousands of barbers that are there. And regardless of what caste system you're in, you go there and you, they, they shave all the hair off of their body. And the reason why they do that is because they're told in the Hindu writings that for every hair thus thrown in, you're promised a million years residence in heaven. So they'll shave their eyebrows, they'll shave their eyelashes, they'll shave everything, they'll collect it, and they'll throw it into the water because for every hair that's thrown in, they get a million years residence in heaven. You'll see at this particular festival, people walk on beds of nails and walk over, or they lie down on beds of nails and they walk on broken glass and they, 
they walk or lie down on hot coals. People are known to take long knives and pierce their tongues in, in order to sentence themselves to eternal silence as a way to appease their gods. They, they will sometimes look up into the sun until they go blind from the sun or intentionally cause their limbs to atrophy. One man held his arm upright for eight years until his muscles atrophied and his fingernails had grown over two and a half feet long. And you look and, and it's an effort to, if we could just do these things, if we could do these things, a million years in heaven for every hair that's thrown in. And in their mind, it's just if we can do these things, if we can obey the rules, if we can do these things that they're telling us to do. There's zeal that's there. But it's zeal also that's without knowledge. You think of Islam. I had a friend, a good friend, who came with us to church many times, even for years. And, and after much time, he decided that he wanted to go back to Islam. And we talked about it. Um, I remember one t- night in particular, it was just, honestly, I just, I just wept with him. Going through and just pleading with him for the gospel. It, it, it wasn't circumstances in which it was just, Okay, you do your thing, we'll do our thing. It was just, my heart broke for this man. We talked about the five pillars of Islam and, and Islamic proclamation that they would make, the, the prayers performed five times a day, the fasting that would take place in Ramadan, the giving of alms, charity, and, and making a pilgrimage to Mecca. And, and I said, do you think that if you do all of those things, that's that, that that is all that is required of you to spend eternity in heaven? If you obey these five pillars of Islam, is that all that is required from you? To where the creator of this universe looks upon you and says, okay, you said what you're supposed to say. You prayed five times a day. And you just see zealousness that's there. I remember we had a soccer game in, in Sudan. And, and we're playing there in this huge stadium. Halftime comes and everybody from the stands came onto the field and did their prayers at halftime. You see zealousness as there early in the morning waking up. You hear the, the calls to prayer and all that takes place. And you look and you say, okay, saying the prayers five times a day, fasting there during the daylight hours for the entire month of Ramadan, um, giving charity to the poor, making your, your pilgrimage to Mecca in the, in the first half of the last month of the lunar year. If you do these things, if you obey all these things, does God look upon it, Almighty God created the entire universe and say, okay, that's enough. Whatever you've done in your life, it's enough as long as you say these things, as long as you pray five times a day, as long as you fast, as long as you give charity, as long as you make your pilgrimage to Mecca, if it's at all possible for you to make that pilgrimage, as long as you do those five things, you're okay. And you see zeal. You see incredible zeal with people. But is it, but is it according 
to knowledge. I look and I, I think of Buddhism where you take the, those that would be the leaders within Buddhism. Um, there's the monks that live in these monasteries. And if you go to places like Burma, you'll see them dressed in a certain clothing. You, if you go to Japan, you'll see them dressed in a certain clothing. If you go to Sri Lanka, you'll see them dressed in a certain clothing. And they have these robes, and the robes based on whatever is the, the the cheapest color to get in that particular region. So they're either red or they're all orange or they're yellow, depending on which country that you're in. But these, these Buddhist monks have, have rules. And typically there's 227 rules that they have to keep. And it's rules to live a simple life and to have a spiritual life and to, as a result of this, attain nirvana. And there's rule after rule. You'll see just incredible zeal amongst these Buddhists. You go through the, the rules and there's primary rules like not having sex or not stealing or not murdering. Um, but there's other rules that get into incredible detail in, in virtually every area of their lives. I mean, all kinds of rules about the robes that they wear, um, what the robes have to be like, um, where they get the robes from. They're, they're not to, to purchase a floor carpet as long as their former one is not yet six years old. And when they do get a new carpet, they can't purchase a new carpet without adding a part of the old one to the new um, they can't accept money. They can't use money. They can't exchange things. They're not to keep an extra bowl for more than 10 days at a time. They're not to ask for a new bowl as long as the present one doesn't have at least five cracks or has become unusable. I mean, literally like detail after detail after detail that's given. They're not to lie down in a building in which there's a woman. They're not to destroy plants. Some of them are more interesting to me than others. They're not to tickle. No matter how much they want to, they cannot tickle. Um, They can't play in the water. They're not to wash more than twice per month unless the body is really dirty. They're not to kill animals. They're not to pretend that they don't know a rule of conduct. You can't, I didn't know. I was just, I, I tickled. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to. You can't pretend like you don't know. You can't hit another monk. You can't make a threatening gesture suggesting he's about to be struck. You can't do it. Rules, I mean, I'm just, there's 227 of them. You're not to accept more than one ration of curry for every three rations of rice when going to collect food. You're not to hide the curry under the rice in order to obtain more. (laughs) Somehow, I don't think Buddha held to all of these things. Um, You're not to look at someone else's bowl with jealousy. You're not to eat by inserting large morsels in your mouth. You're not to open the mouth before the food reaches its level. You're not to put the hand in the mouth. 
Not even a finger. My sister Angela has the ability to put her entire hand in her mouth. (laughs) She'll do demonstrations in the foyer afterwards. And it's not because she has a small hand. Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's my sister. I I can say that. Um, (laughs) You're not to fill the mouth with food so that your cheeks are inflated. You're not to make a noise opening your mouth when eating. You're not to make a slurping noise when absorbing liquid. And the list goes on and on. Every rule that you could possibly think of um, for how they're supposed to live, 227 of these rules that you're supposed to keep if you're to, to reach nirvana as a Buddhist monk. And I, I say those things, and we, I honestly, I, I think some of them are funny, but I, I don't mean it in a way of... of Simply making fun, I look and I see that that regardless, there are rules after rules after rules after rules that people will keep. And the effort is, if I do these things, I will be okay. If I do these things. And yet, what we're told in our text in verse 3 is, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. He talks about their zeal that they have that's without knowledge. But when he talks about it, he says the reason that there is zeal that's with not without knowledge is because they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. This is what God says about them. They look and they... They think, if I just do this, I'll be okay. If I just obey these rules, I'll be okay. And yet you look at the righteousness of God, and God says, they're ignorant. of. They don't get it. They don't understand my righteousness. You think of what God tells us about his righteousness, where he says things like, in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There's no sin. There's no darkness in him whatsoever. In Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who's like you? Who's like you? There's none. There's this otherness that is about him to where he is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Your eyes are pure, not even to look upon evil. You see, in Psalm 89, where it says, for, for who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? 
Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. Righteousness, verse 14, and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. You're righteous, you're perfect, you're mighty in all of your ways. Who's like you? And we look and we see God and he cannot be a part of sin. He can't just say, okay, you've you've done enough. You made your pilgrimage. You gave your alms. You said the right thing. You you haven't killed animals. You haven't killed any any plants. You, You eat according to all of the rules. You've done everything that you're supposed to do. And we'll just pretend like the rest of the stuff didn't happen. You look in in Scripture and and God says, they don't understand my righteousness. They don't understand my righteousness. They don't understand. They're ignorant of what a holy God is like. Jesus says in Luke 12, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. But I'll I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. A God that has the power to throw people for eternity in hell because he is holy and he cannot be a part of sin. In Hebrews 12, 29, he says, For our God is a consuming fire. You look in, in, in number 16 where the, there's those that are are doing something that they ought not to be doing as far as offering uh, an offering to God. And, and literally the, the ground splits apart. The earth opens and it swallows them up with all their goods. And then it closes over them. It tells us, Then all Israel who were around them fled out their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering incense. I mean, we look at that and we, we typically want to think of a God of, he's like our buddy, or he lets everybody get into heaven. Sooner or later, everybody will get into heaven. Or a God that, that, that only sends like the very worst people to hell, but as long as you try your hardest, as long as you're sincere, that's all that really matters. And that's how people want to think of God. And yet you look at it in the pages of Scripture, and we see nothing of that sort of God in the pages of the Bible. You see a God that just consumes people with judgment. A God that is so holy that he says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And so he takes him and he, he places him in, in, in the cleft of the rock and passes by. And he says, I'll place my hand there and you'll see my back, but my face you cannot see. Because he is holy. He is perfectly holy. So it says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, 
and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Why is it that they have zeal without knowledge? Because they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They have no idea of his holiness and what it is really like. But then they also seek to establish their own righteousness. They go from there to say, I think I've done enough. I obeyed all the rules. I'm doing everything I can to obey all of the rules. And brothers and sisters, it, it, it is not just Muslims or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists who do these things. There's a reason why there was the Protestant Reformation. And the reason why was because there's were those, there were those that would call themselves Christians that had all kinds of rules that they had to do. That it was faith plus as long as you do all of these things. And it's for that reason that you see the the, the, the Protestant Reformation, where they come and say, no, we believe that we're saved by faith alone. And it's not just an issue of Protestants versus Catholics. You find it within Protestantism as well, where there's those that would be in churches, where they look churches like our own, where in your mind you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I need to do these things, and I got to do these things, and I have to do these things, and I, I think I did enough. And there's no security in your salvation whatsoever because it's all based upon what you have done, how much you have done, whether you've done enough. And God says they seek to establish their own righteousness. I mentioned this last week, but there is a reason why doctrines like justification by faith alone, they matter to us. They matter to us. A doctrine that says you are saved, not based upon your works, but you are saved solely and completely by faith alone in what Christ has done for you on the cross alone. Because we look at passages like this and it says they're ignorant of God's righteousness and they seek to establish their own righteousness and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They try to do it their way, but they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that's what the Bible teaches. That we cannot have our own righteousness. We can't do it our own way. But we have to have a righteousness that comes from God to us. You hear Paul say, like in Philippians 3, verse 9, to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And not a righteousness that's of my own, but one that comes from God and it comes to me by faith. Or in Galatians 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's impossible. By the works of the law, hear those words again. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's powerful. For us to stand back and say, like, okay, well, as long as they're sincere, that's all that matters. I mean, how can you say someone that devotes their life to a monastery, how can you say that they would go to hell? Or how can you say that someone that has made that pilgrimage? Or how can you say that somebody who has gone to church their entire life? Or how can you say that somebody that's tried to be a good dad or a good mom or a good husband, how do you say that people like that would ever go to hell for all eternity? And, and God would say, for by the works of the law, 
no flesh will be justified. It's not me saying that, that's God saying it. By the works of the law, by you trying to keep all of the rules, there's no chance that anybody ever could be justified. You hear him go on in, in, in verse 19 of Galatians 2. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. It's radical. If righteousness comes by the keeping of the law, then God tells us, then Christ died in vain. It was for nothing that he died. And so you, you picture him. You picture Christ on the cross. There's, there's nails that have been driven through his hands. A nail that's been driven through his feet. There's blood pouring forth from, from his wounds. Blood coming from his brow as a crown of thorns been placed upon his head. His face is beaten as they've taken a bag and they've placed it over his head and they've punched him over and over again saying, prophesy, where's this hit coming from? His back is torn to shreds and there's blood coming. It's, it's come around his chest because they've hit him 39 times with a, a cat of nine tails and he tells us, by my stripes you're healed. You see them spit at him and pluck out his beard, hurl insults at him. You saved others. You, you can't save yourself. You hear the, the words of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You hear him say from the cross, it is finished. To thy hands I commend my spirit. It's finished. And God says, if we're saved by works, if we're saved by the law, then that was all in vain. It was all in vain. And we know that that is not the case. You talk about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, when God says they don't, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. You just look to the cross. The holiness of God, his righteousness, his being set apart and in him is light and no darkness at all. And you look at the cross and you see him there on the cross and it just screams out the infinite worth of the holiness of God that God says there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. There has to be a lamb without spot or blemish or any such thing. There has to be a sacrifice that's made and yet you look and there's the sacrifices of bulls and goats. There's sacrifices of lambs. There's sacrifices, these animal sacrifices and God says that it's a temporary thing but it's pointing ahead to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and you look at all of his and it's all pointing to the cross. It's all pointing to Christ who is to come, the one who came and lived a perfect life without sin. You look at him from the very beginning, born of a virgin birth, uh, from the Virgin Mary, a virgin birth. You look at it and the sinful nature is passed down through the man. Adam, where are you? As he sinned in the garden. And you look at the sinful nature, it's always passed through the man. And everybody has a father, so everybody's got a sinful nature. And you look at Christ, why be born from the Virgin Mary? 
Because he had to be born without sin. He had to be born without that sinful nature. He had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to do that. He had to be perfect, the spotless lamb, without any spot or blemish. The very creator of this universe who gave his son, his eternal son, who has always existed, God himself, to take all of our sin upon himself as his blood was shed there on the cross so that we would look at him upon the cross and see as he's described in scripture as all that he has done for us through the crucifixion and to look at it and say, it's finished. It's finished. It's done. The, the, the price that we can never pay for our sins has been paid in full. He fulfilled all righteousness and he took our sin upon himself and the blood being shed and all that we deserved was all placed upon God himself as he became a man and died on the cross for our sins so that we wouldn't have to suffer it anymore. You look at it and the gospel is amazing. I mean, you think of a God who is sovereign over all things, all powerful, in need of nothing. And you look at it and you think he's as great as he could possibly be. And I'll tell you, When we are there in eternity, when you look at the Lord God that we serve, he cannot be improved upon. I mean, imagine if if I'm in heaven and the reason why is because because I didn't put too much food in my mouth. and, And I never was in the same building lying down with a woman. And I... I always kept my bowl till I had five cracks... Or I made the pilgrimage. Or I did the classes that I needed to do. Or I got baptized. Or I went to church or whatever it is. And I got my list of this is how I got there. I did it. I made it. I did it. There's a big difference for me being an attorney saying I did it. I did it. I got moksha. I got nirvana. I got this because I did everything that I was supposed to do versus being in heaven and saying, all glory, all honor goes to you. For you are the lamb that was slain. I mean, do you see the contrast? One's there saying, I did it. The other one's there saying, all glory belongs to you. I will praise you both now and forevermore for you were the one who created all things. You were the one who became sin for me. You're the one that took the price and paid the price and shed your blood in a way in which I never could have done. There's no chance of me ever being in heaven if it wasn't for you. And it all comes by faith in you, by faith in what you have done for me, not of myself so that I could never boast. It's a gift that came from you to where I'll praise you both now and forevermore because all the glory goes to you for it which is a greater god honestly which is a greater god you look at it and you say the one that gets all the glory and all the honor because he did everything himself or the one that's saying thanks for eating properly thanks for for not putting your food in your mouth until it got up to the right level thanks for obeying all of the rules you did it i'll tell you The God of the Bible doesn't share his glory with anybody. So we see that it's a righteousness that comes not from works, not from the law, but through him. You see, 
In Romans 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. My point in bringing up the other religions that are there is not so that you would leave saying like, wow, we we really destroyed the arguments of, of every other religion. My point is, do not compromise on the gospel. There's reasons why these two gentlemen went to the Maldives to an area that's 100% Muslim to share the gospel. Because there's no life, there's no eternal life, there's no hope in anything other than the gospel. It doesn't say that there's many roads that lead to heaven. Pick the one that you want. It says that through the law, by your flesh, nobody will be justified in the eyes of God. God says narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. In Romans 3.27 it says, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We find this over and over again in the book of Romans, but God wants us to get this, that you are saved by the righteousness of God that comes through faith apart from the deeds of the law, apart from us doing it. You look in Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. See in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin for us, that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when we look at our text here, and it tells us that they're seeking to establish their own righteousness, have and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God, that's what it's talking about. The next verse says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's not keep the law now so that you can earn your righteousness. It's Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He fulfilled the law in its entirety. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And not only that, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness because he became righteousness for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we just read, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You are clothed with robes of righteousness and it's not your own. That's the gospel. The gospel is, is, is here you are and, and you were a sinner trying your hardest to do everything. And God fulfilled all righteousness and took your sin upon himself so that you could have the righteousness of Christ placed upon your account, imputed to you, clothed with robes of righteousness that are foreign, that are not your own, so that he would see you forevermore as perfect without sin. So his eyes could look upon you, so you could approach his throne boldly, not having a righteousness of your own, but having the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is such that through faith in him, I believe you. I believe that you were God who became man, who died on the cross for my sins. 
rose again on the third day. You're my Lord and you're my Savior. Through faith in him, a righteousness comes to us that's not our own, that is ours for all eternity because it's the very righteousness of Christ. Romans 10, 5 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, saying, The man who does these things shall live by them. If you're, if you're going to try to do it by the law, you've got to fulfill all of it. Galatians 5, verse 2 says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit, profit you nothing. If you're trying to do it through circumcision, if you're trying to do it by keeping the law, then Christ will profit you nothing. Once again, the reason why justification by faith alone matters to us, because if you're trying to do it on your own, if you're trying to do it by faith plus works, what we're told is Christ will profit you nothing. To try to save yourself by the law requires you to keep it all. Think of our kids when they're toddlers where, I don't know if yours do this, I'm sure they probably did, but my kids always would say, I do it myself. I do it myself. Myself. I do it myself. And he looks at me like, you can't do it yourself. You need help. And yet, we so often think the same way. I do it myself. The problem is that before God, you cannot do it yourself. Look in. The text goes on in verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will... Descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. For Christ has already come down and he has already risen from the dead. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Think of that verse, brothers and sisters. Think of the weight of that verse. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, he's Lord of your life, the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, meaning that Christ died on the cross Fulfilling the payment that we could never pay, painted in full. God was satisfied with the offering to where God causes Christ to rise again from the dead on the third day, just as Christ said. Meaning, what Christ did for us on the cross when He said it was finished, it truly was finished, it was complete. If you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. It's not, have I done enough? Have I kept the rules enough? It is, do you have faith in Christ as your Lord, as your Messiah? Do you believe that God 
cause him to rise again from the dead. You believe in Christ and your hope is in Christ. You will be saved. It is emphatic. You will be saved. God wants us to know that we're saved. He wants us to be safe. He wants us not to try to, did I do enough? Have I earned my way? Have I accomplished enough? Have I done enough in my life? Does my good outweigh my bad? Have I built up enough karma? Have I done everything that I need to do? God's simply saying, do you have faith in what I accomplished for you on the cross? Because if you believe, you will be saved. Those words, you will be saved, have so much weight to them. We look at this and it's just, you will be saved. You will be saved from the wrath of God for all eternity. You will be saved from the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire is quenched, where the worm cannot die, black as darkness. You will be saved. You will be saved from eternal judgment and you will be transfigured into a place of adoption into the family of God, the bride of Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, entering into the joy of the Lord, being there and beholding him in his glory, being there for all eternity. You will be saved through faith in Christ and what he accomplished for you on the cross. For the scripture, or verse 10, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. We are not. The cross shows us that God is holy, and he demands the shedding of blood for the remission of sin, and he gave his life for us. It is not many roads that lead to heaven. There is one road that leads to heaven, according to Scripture, according to the full authority and the power of Almighty God and His Word, where it says there is one, and it comes by faith in Christ and what He accomplished for us on the cross. It is His righteousness that comes to us. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I love the gospel. It is the message alone in which the world is saved. It cannot be improved upon. It's not approved upon where we say, I don't know if there's really hell. It's not improved upon if it's like, oh, he doesn't do that. It's not improved upon when we say, no, I I think that they'll probably get in. I mean, as long as they're sincere, it's not improved upon. The gospel is there is a holy God, and that holy God took our wrath that we deserved upon himself, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Take that here into the uttermost parts of the world, for there is life, eternal life, and no other message than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For us, no boasting, no boasting. All the glory goes to him.